look out there, gang. The judge is coming. That's me. And she's sweet. She's a coming down the street. Oh, I ask you confidentially. Blank, blank, blankety, blank. Well, that last part was uh, censored. I know some wonderful, fantastic lyrics to that song, which I learned in the second platoon of Company K, which is our own special little composition that dedicated to a first lieutenant we had that uh, had a tendency to wear pink shoes and... Ain't she sweet? <laughs> oh, rotten person. I really know. No damn good. Bring it out of that lodger. That's all right. That thumping is it's good. It keeps them on their toes, you know. They're sitting out there with their cheap little transistor Japanese radios, you know. Give them some, something to listen to anyway. The nervous people out there. Tonight's program is entitled Our Salute to Hugh Downs. Bring it up. Hey, listen, would you do something for me there, say? Just to perform, but take take that, take the head, take the head on, on the, you know, the magnificent stereo disc that I gave you there, and uh, cue up the first cut, the first one. Remember our boy Ricard? Richard? The first cut, side one. Now, hold it down. I'll tell you when. Just cue it up there. Let's just cue it up. I've got, I go, oh, this is, by the way, uh, before we get any further, friends, I want to warn you. This is, uh, I believe in warning people. You know how, like in England, uh, whenever they, they're putting on a particularly hairy television show, something really nitty-gritty, they have a little sign that says, for adults and the mature, please. Which means all greasy kids, this is a great one to watch. Okay, <laughs> and uh, so before we before we get started, I just want to warn you: this is going to be a fantastically scary show. It's Friday night, you know. The thunder is roaring out out of the out of the horse latitudes. That's a great phrase, the horse latitudes. How would you like to sail the trade winds through the horse latitudes? Right? Okay. The man comes onto the set bearing the pain of the ages. in the background goes commercial gang. <laughs> uh, now watch. Within two weeks, that will appear some bright young chipmunk over at YNR or BBDNO or LB&Q or SOB or one of those big agencies over there. Say, hey, boss, I got an idea. Gothic and recourse and... Dun, 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 dun. Now, would you reset that first, that second cut now that we had all prepared in there? Now, speaking of scary things, Friday night, you know, we got the Anderson out of the way now. 
We got the Miller out of the way. Let's get the other one out of the way. There's one more because we got some serious stuff we're going to do tonight. Very serious stuff. And uh, speaking of serious stuff, there's nothing more serious on the radio, friends, than a commercial. And uh, if you're a modern 20th century man, nothing you like more, really, that excites you more than to play around electricity. I see. Do all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can, you can wire up the settee. And, uh, and that's a real conversation piece. I'll tell you, I, I, I one time saw a guy wire up a chaise lounge, and you know, talk about conversation pieces. People would sit down there. You see, and if they were wearing the right kind of polyethylene skirts and stuff, you know, they, they'll, they'll carry a little current once in a while. He would press the button, and their hair curlers would stand straight up in the air. And then cut it off real quick in like two seconds of a sh- quick shot of the juice there. And the woman would look around. Everyone said, well, what happened there? Your glasses lit up. <laughs> well, oh, I'll tell you this evil. I'm a rotten person. But uh, we have with us tonight, friends, Rosetta. And they have this great collection of unbelievable electrical equipment. And if you're going to do any stuff over the weekend, you know, like, uh, oh, like uh, wire up the settee or put in a chandelier or put in an air conditioning unit or build an electric chair, anything like that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hobbies. Uh, we would like to recommend Rosetta because they had these wild black light posters. And you turn that black light on. You know what black light is, don't you? You know, they turn this black light on. These posters light up. And let me tell you, friends, if the word gets out in your neighborhood that you've got these posters on your wall, you're liable to get busted. That's Rosetta. A word to the wise. That's Rosetta. And uh, they got three great stores, one of them on 45th Street, just off 6th Avenue. And they have a fantastic new showroom down on Murray Street, 73 Murray Street, two blocks west of City Hall, within easy reach of Sam Pan's everything. Just goes right in there. And when you walk in, you simply say, Excelsior, you slob. And uh, stand back and see what happens. Hey, I did it right, didn't I? All right, tonight I have a scary thing for you. So get ready now. Will I get it ready here? This is something, boy, I'm going to tell you, you ain't going to like it. You are not going to like it. All set now? All ready for the big moment? I'm rubbing my hands together. Hear this sound? That's the sound of a fiend rubbing his hands together. Hear that? <laughs> yes. Yes, friends. You have come to the right spot on the dial. Some great fate somewhere has decreed that tonight, this night of all nights, your radio dial that little simple honest condenser made of aluminum and polyethylene would somehow be tuned to this spot of all the spots in the cosmos this spot <laughs> we are the hollow men we are the stuffed men leaning together headpiece Filled with straw. Alas. Our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass. 
or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Yes, those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams in death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. There is a tree swinging and voices are in the winds, singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises. Rat's coat, crow skin, crossed staves in a field, behaving as the wind behaves. No nearer. Not that final meeting of the Twilight Kingdom. Yes, this is the dead land. This is cactus land. Here the stone images are raised. Here they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkle of a fading star. Is it like this in death's other kingdom? Waking alone at the hour when we are trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss form prayers to broken stone. The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdoms, in this last of meeting places we grope together and avoid speech gathered on this beach of the tumid river, sightless, unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, multifoliate rows of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Yes, here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Life is very long. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is, life is. For thine is the, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. I knew you'd like that. One of our favorite poems, wasn't it? Oh, <laughs> Sneaky face here, huh? Oh, 
Oh, there's old Lion Face. Hey, how are you? How Barry? How are you? By George Beery, I'll tell you, you get you get more you get more corn pone anger than anybody I ever saw this side of Andy Griffith. How oh, Barry, how are you? <laughs> I'll never forget Barry one night. Barry's saying on the air, Barry just walked in the studio. I remember one night Barry's on the air scene, he says, I just hear it drifting out of my monitor speaker. See, I'm surrounded by all the shards and the artifacts in my office. And out of the monitor speaker I hear Barry say you don't mean to tell me. You don't mean to sit there right there before me and tell me a fact like that and expect me to believe it? We'll be back in just a moment after this 60-second announcement. <laughs> Hi, Barry. You're one of the great guys in this business, I'll tell you. Uh, this is, uh... Oh, bring, bring it. Sneak that in again. Sneak that in again. We are... We are the hollow men. Yes, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together. Headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind and dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. How about that for a station break for WOR in New York? <laughs> and down into the great abyss from the 600. <laughs> oh, what a wild Friday night. I tell you, you can tell right away this ain't hey, Faye Henley. <laughs> hey, did you like that? Did you like that poetry? All right, now I'm going to I'm going to read you another one by uh, by Eliot. That uh, that's one of my favorite poems of all time, I must say. I really, uh, I, I must say, that that, uh, that makes it. You agree? You want to hear another little piece of, uh, of, of Poe? This this music, or not Poe, but Eliot. I think Eliot has a great connection with Poe, by the way. I don't think it's been, been, been pointed out very much. But you know, they're both American poets. <laughs> and, uh, and in spite of the fact that everyone likes to think of Eliot as, as the arch-typical Englishman, he is from St. Louis. And don't you forget it. And, uh, and he never could forget it. And that's what bugged him. But uh, nevertheless, that's another part of the hollow man problem. Do uh, you want to hear another? Another famous uh, Poe? Or rather, uh, Eliot? Uh, all right, all right. Here's one, all right. Listen to this one. This is a beautiful one. I'll tell you what, what you do with this one. Uh, get, me, get, me the, uh, get me the one marked Atmospheres. Let's try that one now. And for those of you who wonder what this wild music is that, that, that I'm using behind this, I'll tell you later, later on in the show. Because it, it has a specific meaning with what I'm doing tonight. This is a little... Uh, I told you. I'm sorry. This is not going to be a show about how the, how the time I was just a kid one time and I had to... I'll, I'll bring that out. I'll sneak it in there. Why should the aged eagle 
stretch its wings. Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual rain? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think, because I know I shall not know, the one veritable transitory power. Because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow. For there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place. And what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are. And I renounce the blessed face. And I renounce the voice. Because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And pray to God to have mercy upon us. And I pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air. The air, which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Lady, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed to society on my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which had been sustained in the hollow round of my skull. And God said, shall these bones live? Shall these bones live? And that which had been contained in the bones, which were already dry, said, chirping. Because of the goodness of this lady and because of her loveliness, we shine with brightness, and I who am here dissemble proper my deeds to oblivion. How's that for a nice little quick Friday night whoopee? <laughs> well, you've got to admit I read it well. Oh, yeah. You're a little surprised, aren't you? You know, I, I've got a lot of theories about poetry reading, and I haven't. I won't say any more. Do you want to hear some more of this? Here's, here's, another, here's another wild poetry, piece of poetry. All right. Okay. All right, here's one for you. Okay. Sneak in the... the uh, Atmospheres, if you want to hear a strange, strange piece of business. It's called The Fish. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water, with my hook fast in the corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung, a grunting weight, battered and vulnerable and homely. Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-grown roses, stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, 
fine rosettes of lime and infested with tiny white sea lice. And underneath, two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of the shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil, seen through the lenses of old scratched isinglass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, hung five old pieces of fish line, or four, and a wire leader with the swivel still attached, with all of their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines, and a fine black threads still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away, like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange and the sun-cracked ports and oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. <laughs> How'd you like that? Wasn't that beautiful? That was by Elizabeth Bishop, who was brought up in Nova Scotia and is a Vassar girl. Okay? <laughs> That's a beautiful piece of work. You want to hear another one? Listen to this one. This is a sneaky one. Get ready with this now. All set? All right. I'm going to read part of this one. The part that has the heart of it. All right, sneak it in there. This is entitled The Imaginary Iceberg. We'd rather have the iceberg than the ship, although it meant the end of travel. Although it stood stock still like a cloudy rock, and all the sea were moving marble. We'd rather have the iceberg than the ship. We'd rather own this breathing plain of snow, though the ship's sails were laid upon the sea, as the snow lies undissolved upon the water. Oh, solemn, floating field, are you aware an iceberg takes repose with you and when it wakes may pasture in your snows? This is a scene a sailor give his eyes for. The ship's ignored. The iceberg rises and sinks again. Its glassy pinnacles correct elliptics in the sky. This is a scene where he who treads the boards is artlessly rhetorical. The curtain is light enough to rise on finest groups that airy twists of snow provide. The wits of these white peaks spar with the sun. Its weight, the iceberg dares upon a shifting stage and stands and stares. This iceberg cuts its facets from within like jewelry from a grave. It saves itself perpetually and adorns only itself. 
perhaps the snows which so surprise us lying on the sea. Goodbye, we say. Goodbye. The ship steers off where waves give in to one another's waves and clouds run in a warmer sky. Icebergs behoove the soul, both being self-made from elements least visible, to see them so, flesh, fair, erected, indivisible. That's the imaginary iceberg. Listen to this one by the same girl, the man moth. Here above, cracks in the building are filled with battered moonlight. The whole shadow of man is only as big as his hat. It lies at his feet like a circle for a doll to stand on. And he makes an inverted pin, the point magnetized to the moon. He does not see the moon. He observes only her vast properties, feeling the queer light in his hands, neither warm nor cold, of a temperature impossible to record in thermometers. But when the man-moth pays his rare, although occasional, visit to the surface, the moon looks rather different to him. He emerges from an opening under the edge of one of the sidewalks and nervously begins to scale the faces of the buildings. He thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky, proving the sky quite useless for protection. He trembles, but must investigate as high as he can climb. Up the facade, his shadow dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him, he climbs fearfully, thinking that this time he will manage to push his small head through that round, clean opening and be forced through as from a tube in black scrolls on the night. Man standing below him has no such illusions. But what the man-moth fears, most he must do. Although he fails, of course, and falls back, scared but unhurt. Then he returns to the pale subway of cement he calls his home. He flits, he flutters. He cannot get aboard the silent trains fast enough to suit him. The doors close swiftly. The man-moth always seats himself facing the wrong way. And the train starts at once, at its full, terrible speed, without a shift in gears or a gradation of any sort. He cannot tell the rate at which he travels, backwards. Each night, he must be carried through artificial tunnels and dream recurrent dreams, just as the ties recur beneath his train. These underlie his rushing brain. He dare not look out the window, for the third rail, the unbroken draft of poison, runs there beside him. He regards it as disease he has inherited susceptibility to. He has to keep his hands in his pockets, as others must wear mufflers. If you catch him, hold up a flashlight to his eye. It's all dark pupil, an entire night itself whose haired horizon tightens as he stares back and closes up the eye. Then from the lids, one tear, his only possession, like the bee's sting, slips. Slyly, he palms it. Now, if you're not paying attention, he'll swallow it. However, if you watch, he'll hand it over, cool as from underground springs and pure enough to drink. Wow! <laughs> Elizabeth Bishop. That's written by Elizabeth Bishop. Isn't that a wild poem? Hey.
<laughs> you didn't think you'd run into this tonight on a Friday night, did you? Yeah. Listen, speaking of writing, and I don't like to bring myself into this, but uh, been getting all kinds of letters on it. Speaking of writing, I have a short story that uh, I I enjoyed more writing, I think, than anything I've ever written in the current issue of Playboy. You ever read? You ever read? You don't read Playboy? You unfold it, is that it? <laughs> ah, the evil that lies in the hearts of men. Uh, but that's in the current issue of July, and the title of it is the... Ollie Hopnoodle's Haven of Bliss. I think you'll enjoy it. You know, speaking of Elizabeth, she's, you mean you've never heard of her? She's fine. Po- you have heard of her. You never heard her poetry. Not read like this, you haven't. Not like this. All right. Do you want to hear another one of her things? This is something... Oh, sneak this one. This is... Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, let's, 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 now I'll show you what you can do with mood music. If you people are interested in how, how, how music and sounds work on the human brain, and they really do, man, far more than smells and sights, would you get, uh, sneak in there the great Danube, the blue Danube, which is on that same cut. Now watch this. I don't know, but maybe I shouldn't louse this one up like that, see? All right, now listen to this. All right, we're, we're, I'll, I'll give you a little sneakiness, how you can take how you can take a piece of... All right, I'll just let it lay here. Now watch it. Don't you... This is entitled, Little Exercise. Think of the storm roaming the sky uneasily like a dog looking for a place to sleep in. Listen to it, growling. Ah, yes, think how they must look now. The mangrove keys lying out there, unresponsive to the lightning in dark, coarse-fibered families. Where occasionally a heron may undo his head, shake up his feathers, make an uncertain comment, when the surrounding water shines. Isn't that a lovely picture? Think of the boulevard and the little palm trees all stuck in rows, suddenly revealed as fistfuls of limp fish skeletons. Doesn't that describe a palm tree? It is raining there. The boulevard and its broken sidewalks with weeds in every crack are relieved to be wet, the sea to be freshened. Now the storm goes away, again, in a series of small, badly lit battle scenes, each in, quote, another part of the field. Think of someone sleeping in the bottom of a rowboat, tied to a mangrove root, or the pile of a bridge. Think of them as uninjured, barely disturbed. Is that a nice picture of a storm? Okay. Yeah. You didn't expect this, did you? Oh, a sneaky, you know what. Now, I'll, I'll sneak in another one to you here. Now, here's another fine poet. Let's see. Now, this this is another attitude towards... These are, these are American poets I'm reading. And this is a totally different attitude towards life. I think this one... 
Uh, I think we should have the mezzo sopranos on this. This is a this is a sneaky one. And uh, I'll uh, I'll give you I'll give you three guesses. This is a contemporary poet, and uh, I'll give you three guesses to who this one is. Sneak it in there. there. This is entitled The Deer and the Snake. The deer is humble, lovely as God made her. I watch her eyes and think of wonder. Owned, these seven priests enter the cathedral of woods, and seven Marys clean their hands to woo her. Foot lifted, dagger sharp, her ears poised to their points like a leaf's head. But the snake strikes in a velvet arc of murderous speed, assassin beautiful as mountain water at which a fawn drank. Stand there forever while the poison works, while I stand counting the arms of your cross, thinking that many Christs could hang there, crying. How about that for a film? That was not Aesop, no. That was not Ogden Nash, friends. Well, that's a beautiful poem. It's the deer and the snake. Listen to this one now, called Street Corner College. Next year, the grave grass will cover us. We stand now and laugh, watching the girls go by, betting on slow horses, drinking cheap gin. We have nothing to do, nowhere to go, nobody. Last year was a year ago, nothing more. We weren't younger then, nor older now. We manage to have the look that young men have. We feel nothing behind our faces one way or another. We shall probably not be quite dead when we die. We were never anything all the way, not even soldiers. We are the insulted brother, the desolate boys, sleepwalkers in a dark and terrible land where solitude is a dirty knife at our throats. Cold stars watch us, chum. Cold stars and the horrors. How did you like that one? Well, you see, this—you see—the same attitude runs through the the uh, the deer and the snake, and this one called Street Corner College. A guy standing on the street corner. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, betting on slow horses, drinking cheap gin. We have nothing to do, nowhere to go, nobody. That's the love song of Marty. <laughs> Not Jay Proofrock. You want to hear another one of his, or, or is this stuff a little little wild, huh? Hmm? You want to hear this? Who do you think it is? All right, I'll sneak one more little quickie here. This is called, Do the Dead Know What Time It Is? The old guy put down his beer. Son, he said, and a girl came over to the table where we were. Ask us by Jack Christ to buy her a drink. Son... I'm going to tell you something, the like of which nobody ever was told. And the girl said, I've got nothing on tonight. How about you and me going to your place? I'm going to tell you the story of my mother's meeting with God. And I whispered to the girl, I don't have a room, but maybe. She walked up to where the top of the world is, and he came right up to her and said, So at last you've come home. But what's maybe that I thought I'd like to stay here and talk to you. My mother started to cry, and God put his arms around her. About what? Well, just talk. We'll find something. 
She said it was like a fog coming over her face and light was everywhere and a soft voice saying, you can stop crying now. What can we talk about that will take all night? And I said that I didn't know. You can stop crying now. <laughs> who is that? Yeah, I'll tell you who that is. That's Kenneth Patchen. From Niles, Ohio. For the benefit of those of you who want to know where he's from. <laughs> now, now, I'll tell you what this music is. This is uh, one of those nights. And, uh, it, uh... The music, in case you're interested in what all those sounds are. Maybe I shouldn't even tell them. I just want to think about it. No, I should. Give credit where credit is due. This is from the soundtrack of 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's mu uh, movie. And uh, I must say that the, the soundtrack on this thing is fantastic. It, uh, it's one of the, it's really, I think, one of the first. Here, put on, put on atmospheres. I'll describe the scene of what, what this... Uh, what this uh, m this music is behind that at the point when uh, the space travelers have now begun to approach the planet that uh, for months they've been traveling toward through this great empty void of space they're now beginning to slowly go into orbit around Jupiter they're spinning faster and faster and faster and faster into the atmosphere, the orbit, or at least the magnetic field of this great, fantastic, dark planet, Jupiter, lying way out on the edge of the galaxy. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I wish I had all night. Hang loose. And don't forget, we'll be back tomorrow night. For those of you who don't know, we're on on Saturday. We're on... On Saturday, and, you know, we may have something. Five minutes past ten to eleven, so swing loose. Think clean thoughts. And uh, what was it that J. Arthur Prufrock said? Uh, oh, shucks, a penny saved is a penny. No, that was Ape Man Sweeney. No, shucks, that was Earl Wilson in the post. Oh, well, six of one, half a dozen the other. And so that concludes tonight's salute to Hugh Downs. Hang loose, friends.